This is a podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author Huda Al-Marashi talks with CIIS professor Daniel Koenig about the process of navigating love and expectations while straddling two cultures. This event was recorded on November 29, 2018 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. And that's also where you can find out more about us, including how to sponsor future episodes of the show. To CIIS and to San Francisco. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and welcome to all of you. Thank you for being here this evening with us and also um, listening. Um, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I received your book about three months ago, um, just before I left for a trip, and I got to read part of it at the beach. And I was just really touched by your honesty in your writing, and it read like a novel. And I had to stop a few times while I was reading the book to remind myself that this is actually your lived experience. And so I really want to just thank you, starting out, being so honest and generous with your experience in sharing. Thank so. you so much. It's also an honor for an author to be a beach read. That's yeah. a life goal. <laughs> beach read and airplane read. Yes, very much so. It was, it was very easy to read. So I want to start out by um, asking you what inspired you to write the book? It really comes back to representation. Uh, this book came... The inspiration for me to write this book came during the Iraq War. I was really struggling with seeing the death toll rising every day, and it seemed like just numbers, and we become this kind of faceless, nameless body of people. And I just had this feeling like if only people knew us and knew us in our homes and how we are with our families, maybe people would care a little bit more. And so I just started writing like that, like I was inviting everybody into my home and get to meet my family. And I was a new writer and it wasn't very good. And it didn't, it didn't go anywhere, but I kept at it. And I kept persisting with that goal of wanting to share and to invite people into our lives and to soften that perception of us. And after draft, after draft, after draft, what I realized is that the best way to reach people and touch people is through relationship stories because that is what matters the most to all of us. That's a universal need is relationship stories. And so I started to imagine what would my relationship story look like. And uh, relationship stories are the perfect place to explore kind of that bicultural divide that I was also trying to get at showing this Iraqi American immigrant experience because if there was one place where the two cultures really divided it was when it came to our perceptions of love and marriage that was the stark difference and that became uh, the place where I felt like was the most compelling to enter this story. Mm Yeah, thank you. And you're already touching on it. The two themes that really stood out to me was that um, 
the the two cultures and like growing up with two cultures and how that can create tension sometimes for people. Um, and then also the expectations that we go into marriage with. And so I'm, I'm just curious, what about those two themes? You're, you're talking about it a little bit already, but can you just share a little bit more about what was important and what you wanted to convey with those two themes as well? Right. With the, with the you know, the bicultural identity is this funny thing where I always tell people it's like it means something, but it means nothing at the same time. You know, uh, all these things that we make these broad generalizations, this is this very, this moment where I'm leaving a very Arab experience and here I'm acting very American. They're all generalizations that when you step back from them, it's present in every culture, right? Like, especially the children of immigrants, we tend to do these this kind of negotiation, right? Um, when I'm with my family and friends and I'm doing things out of duty and obligation, we're, doing, we're acting kind of cultural. And then uh, when I'm trying to be independent and assertive, that's my American side. But those, that's kind of a tight binary that doesn't even really exist, right? Because in those communities and in those cultures, all those strains are there. It's not like in Iraq we didn't have independent, strong, educated women. And it's not like in America you don't have conservative uh, women who are struggling to do to live their life and make independent choices. But at the same time, there's some truth to this, right? There is some kind of organizing principle that is true, and so that was the tension that I was trying to negotiate in the book, to show the ways in which the character starts off with this kind of tight binary. And um, there's this one chapter, the second chapter, I call it Muslim love. And she's kind of comparing Muslim love to American love. And it's this very stark division. But as time goes on, what you see is the softening of that understanding. And she starts to realize, oh, it's not, it's not what I thought it was. And what kind of pushes that understanding is she finds herself in Mexico. And in the third space, she realizes all these things that she thought were so Middle Eastern are really also Mexican too. And maybe these the divide that she had invented in her mind isn't exactly what she thought it was either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. And um, one piece that stood out to me was also that like culture comes in so many different forms like it's music it's language it's um it's food that we experience as well but also one piece is the stories that we get told and so the middle eastern narratives and stories about marriage are somewhat different than the u.s stories and you you talk in um especially in the early chapters, a lot about that, that tension. Right, somewhat. it was like the Middle Eastern story of love that we were told was just this very pragmatic kind of thing. You meet somebody, and the most important thing is that they share your same religion and your culture, and they have a good job, and as long as they check off all these boxes, it's workable. You can, you'll fall in love with them later, and you'll learn to love them. Now, the thing is... For children of immigrants, we also grow up in this kind of vacuum, so we're not hearing other stories. So it's not that our culture didn't have love stories, we just didn't hear them. We only heard the American, Western, entertainment culture's love stories, and ours 
just kind of paled in comparison. It wasn't, you know, I mean, the, and it, it, that romantic love story isn't help serving anyone, right? It's not even helping any of us in American culture. It's an ideal that's hard for everyone to live up to. But that was the thing that we also aspired to. And that was something I was trying to correct in that book, in my book, was to say, okay, well, what would a love story look like that from within our traditions that kind of followed the rules and did the right things that you were supposed to do? Um, because you can't, you can't want what you don't see. And, and that was the, the thing that my generation struggled with and what I still see um, young Muslim Americans struggling with is the only thing that they can see in terms of a love story and that's worthy of emulation is things that were, if you're going to be an observant Muslim, are not allowed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you give a few examples of that in the book. And I'm wondering if you can maybe share a few of those where um, you, you had these stories of what you weren't allowed and then in, yet in the American culture, there were also some of these fantasies of things that you did want to have. I'm, I'm thinking about an engagement as well as you're like talking about the expectations that you had. Right. The way I set up in the story is my character's kind of trying to cheat the system. And she's like, let me have, I'll, I'll find the guy who checks off all the boxes and that makes my parents happy. And once we're engaged in this Islamically acceptable way, then my American love story needs to start. And how was I going to know that I had the American love story? That meant that I had to get certain things that were like I had seen in, a, in, in movies and television. So I wanted um, something. I needed surprises because surprises were a big part of movies and television. I wanted a down-on-one-knee proposal. I wanted some dates. I wanted lots of presents. And I thought all of these things were going to be my proof. And then when I had... Whenever any of my American friends asked me, I wouldn't have to tell them this complicated story of how I met my spouse. I was just going to be like, yeah, we had a love story. And look at all the stuff I got to prove it, right? And let me tell you this engagement story I had um, to prove it. And the thing is that, you know, like now with my 40-year-old woman perspective, I just don't know why I even thought that that was possible you know i mean and that's what brings us up to the expectations right so i had built this world of expectations where there was no space to be happy because there was no way any of those things were going to happen you know we weren't our, our parents were a little bit on the more conservative side and I, I think you would be hard pressed to find a family who would do the same thing again um my husband's parents didn't even do the same thing again with his siblings but uh, we weren't really allowed to go out alone before we got married and i don't know where i expect where or when i expected this poor boy to be able to whisk me away and give me all those things but you know that that just just it just shows the power of the expectation it's such a pull um and 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 it plays out in every chapter of our lives it's not like oh okay i'm done now having unreasonable expectations right <laughs> because i learned my lesson i i went through this exact same thing with the book <laughs> coming out like pretty much just relived my relationship story with my book <laughs> we're never finished it translates but that's why we have to keep talking about it right yes. we have yes. to keep talking about expectations yeah and that piece 
that transcends cultures, that right. expectation that we come into relationship with and these expectations that we then also project onto our partner. And you so honestly talk about in your book how those then also got in the way. And so I wonder if you can just talk a little bit more about like that tension that comes from expectations in the beginning of marriage as well. Yeah, I think, okay, so there was, a, there was my expectations for this whirlwind romance, but, you know, even our cultural expectations, it's not like that the Middle Eastern culture doesn't have expectations as well, right? Um, the promise is that you're going to, if you do all the right things and you meet the right partner, you are going to learn to love them. And you are, this is going to be, um, like, we, we, our tradition has this notion that you complete your um, faith when you when you get married. So it's not like there's no expectations there as well for some kind of fulfillment, you know, some spiritual fulfillment in terms of, of what marriage is, you know, and I think all cultures fall into that great big divide, right? The before and after marriage. And we, Eastern cultures do this a lot too because we make the wedding and the status of being a bride such a big deal. And it's a big part of our language. Like when we give little girls a compliment, we call her Arusa. Oh, you look like a bride. And when we compliment people at the end of um, like their graduations, well, God willing, the day of your wedding. And God willing, the day of your wedding. God willing, the day of your wedding until you get married. And then once you get married, God willing, the day you see your children. And these are important life markers. There, it's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with um, acknowledging that, but it does create this expectation. So on both sides, from both cultures, it was the American expectation for love and romance, and the Middle Eastern kind of expectation of fulfillment, that I had really completed this important milestone and that my life was beginning because I had gotten married. And, you know, um, we have a lot of things like, okay, you're a bride now, so you should look a certain way, mm -hmm. and you should dress a certain way, and you need all new clothes. And, and so life was disappointing. Married life is really disappointing, right? Because I, I, I know all of my Middle Eastern friends went through this. It's like once you got married, you, you were a bride for a year or two years until you had your first child. So there's, there was this expectation that you were always going to look like a bride and you were supposed to wear a little bit more gold and be a little bit flashier. And, you know, when your mom came to see you as a newlywed and you weren't looking so nice, she was like, what's going on here? You're a bride, you know? And, and, in, and in the community as well, there was this expectation when you came out that you're a bride. And then, you know, you go home and you're in your life and the doors are closed and you're like, hey, wait a minute. There's some tough stuff I'm negotiating here. And this doesn't look like the shiny new beginning I was promised. Yes. So I think that's the kind of the tension that I was really trying to poke at a little bit in the book. <laughs> yes, and you do such an amazing job. And I, I think also the stories that we grow up also here in the West of like happily ever after. Happily ever after, right. And you're, you're hinting at this. is like, what is that though then? Like happily ever after. What, how does that really look? And I think that's where a lot of these expectations can then also come and get in the way between two young people who are trying to make this relationship oh, work. Totally. And I remember... You know, I, I wasn't writing this as a newlywed. I was writing this as a woman who had been married for many years. And what always struck me and kind of also fed into my motivation for doing this was just how resilient those happily ever after ideals are. 
And it didn't matter if I was sitting around with a bunch of women five years into it or 10 years into it or 15 years into it. There was always this reckoning because that story would rear your head. It rears its head in your dark moments when you're just struggling, you know, to slog through life because life is hard and there's moments where you're just getting through stuff and it's just like, wasn't I supposed to be happier than this? You know, that voice is so dangerous and that's that happily ever after story that, you know, crops up, just sneaks up on us in those darker moments and, um, and it's 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 that it's the the road to unhappily ever after, right? Yeah, very much so. And um, and we talked on the phone earlier, and you were sharing a little bit about how there was this trust that needed to develop between you and your husband as well, and how that was not something that was there just from the beginning. And there's one part in the book where you talk about. Um, you were engaged and there was this surprise. So maybe I'm going to let you tell the story tell a little bit, bit or read from it, however you would like to do. So remember how I was telling you how I really wanted a date and it was getting close and my wedding was right around the corner. I'm like, we've never had a real one-on-one date. And, and, and so my husband, who was my fiance then, got permission from his parents to take me somewhere, and we were going to go somewhere one-on-one. And now, the story is like, the way it is in the book, it's, it, un- it un- unravels, because this date meant different things to everybody in our family. And for my father-in-law, I think a little bit, he was uncomfortable, like, I'm going to go let these kids do something that I don't really feel like is a good idea. So when it was time for us to leave, he kept delaying things and saying, like, well, wouldn't you like to say your daily prayers before you leave it's like okay you can't say no to that so we prayed and then well wouldn't you like to leave the house with um, my my fiance's sister and there was no sense in that but we couldn't argue with him so here we are it's like the day of my only my first and only date and I have this in my head that this outing is going to be the outing that I'm going to tell everybody about and this is the one that I'm going to prove that we've had this love story so we get in the car, and it's already late, and we are not arriving at this destination that I do not know where we're going, because part of this is I have to be surprised. And I've told him, <laughs> I have to be surprised. And, and I start to panic, and I'm like, we're lost. And, and it's getting dark, and there's just no sense in us keeping on trying and on going. And so um, he pulls over, and he whips out a map. And in my book, I wrote it, and it stayed like this for years. I say that he says, we're lost. Because that's how I remembered it. We were lost. And uh, we moved closer to this destination that we never made it to just last year. And on a whim for Valentine's Day, I'm like, we need to go back there. We need to finish that story because we never made it. We ended up turning around um, on my suggestion. And um, and I, I'm like, I, I want to I go. I want to just finish this story. So we get there, and it was Julian. Uh, it's like an hour outside of San Diego, and it's this like, historic gold mining town that's known for pie. And I'm like, I get there, I'm like, oh, my God, our life would have been so different if we made it to Julian. I love pie, and I love history, and, I, and it's so cute and quaint. I'm like, you didn't know me. 20 years ago, you were going to take me to the right place, and our whole life would have been different if only we didn't get lost. 
And he said, but we weren't lost. You just didn't trust me that I knew where I was going. And like this light went off in my head and I'm like, you're right. Now that I know you, I know you're never lost. Like if I had just known him better, like my husband is a compass, a human compass. He doesn't get lost. He knows directions. And, and I think that's just such an illustrative point of what happens in, in new couples is that you just don't know each other. And like now we know each other so well that there's certain arguments that, you know, I'm like, oh, you're just being you and I'm just being me and there's no way that this can go any differently. But back then I really didn't know that. Yes. <laughs> And I just am appreciating how you're telling the story now, having read it as well. And just, again, the honesty with which you're sharing this and also this piece around the trusting and learning to trust each other and how we don't actually kind of learn to do that until we're in it. Right. It takes time. It takes time to really learn a person. And I think once you've, um, once you kind of learn a person and how they are in each circumstance, I think that's why marriage does get easier and better or relationships get easier and better as time goes on. And I don't know if we tell enough stories about long-term commitments and people have been married or in a relationship for a long time. And um, that was another reason why I wanted to write this story is because so many people are in committed relationships and in Western culture, we've kind of painted it like that's when your story ends. The most of our love stories are boy meets girl. And I even when I was pitching this book, I kept telling in, in the query letters to people, like, pay attention to my story. I, and I said, I just wanted to write a story that makes boy marries girl just as compelling. Um, and I think we all need to read more stories about couples that have been in a relationship for a long time because they're we're still fascinating um you know we're still navigating we're still learning each other and every chapter has something interesting going on and i think you could write three or four stories about the course of one relationship Mm-hmm. And like you're saying, it's such an important story to be told because very often it ends with boy meets girl and then they maybe have a big wedding and or boy meets boy or girl meets girl. And it's such an important piece about like how do relationships actually make it through the ups and downs. And, um, and you have quite a bit of ups and downs through your book as well. And at one point, I think you've been married for maybe about a year and you moved to Mexico mm-hmm. together. And so I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about that, because that's also a big transition point for you, because you've been in school, you'd spent so much time like trying to finish your education too. And then you moved to Mexico, and you're not studying. At first, you're not working. And that's a huge transition. And so if you can just talk a little bit about what happened there for you as well, going to Mexico. Yeah, and those chapters what I, I really had wanted to show as well is that, you know, I think like our, our, our happiness and our um, satisfaction in a relationship is so has to do with our own personal satisfaction and our own personal journey. And so what happened when we arrived in Mexico was this, I was kind of unmoored. I had been this kind of driven student who was on her way to graduate school and I thought I was going to get my PhD and I wound up in this place where I didn't have anything that belonged to me 
And I suffered for that. And then I made my spouse suffer for that because he had to be punished. And he had to be told that I wasn't becoming anything because he'd brought me to this place. And I think it's such a common experience because couples move. Life circumstances change. And sometimes it leans more in the favor of one person than the other. And you're doing something that's supporting one person's dreams and not so much the other. And when I think any human being, when they're not doing something that they find some kind of satisfaction in, they chafe. They feel restless. And when you're in a committed relationship, you blame it on your spouse. They're the easy target. <laughs> when you're alone, you're like, oh, i got to work on myself. <laughs> when you're in a relationship, you're like, oh, it's your fault. And what are you going to do about this? Right? And so in Mexico, there was this constant, like, reaching and grasping. What can I do to give my life meaning? What can I do that will fill this kind of hole and void? that I was feeling. And, you know, you don't see this in the book, but really writing has saved my marriage in many ways, too, because this has nurtured my creative spirit. And I think that we are all, like, hungry, creative beings. I think everybody has some kind of creative energy that's, like, desperate to go out. And we all owe it to ourselves in our committed relationships or not, you know, just as humans, to pursue that thing that is calling you and that's kind of nagging at you because your relationship will be better for it. You know, taking care of yourself is the best thing you can do for your, for your, for your partnership, for your long-term partnership. Yeah, very much so. Like that, that creative expression yes. of us, which, would, if it's cooking, if it's painting, if it's any expression. And I think Western is. society has done a terrible job of creating that soulmate language, right? It's so dangerous. It's so poisonous because the, the, the onus then becomes on the partner that you should be fulfilling this thing that's impossible for another human to do for you. I mean, let's be honest, everyone. You're not really in a relationship with your partner. You're in a relationship with yourself in your own head thinking about your partner. <laughs> you know, and he, that your partner is in their own head thinking about you. And you're in the same room doing the same things, but you're not having the same experience. And ever, you know, you're all filtering it through your lens. So that notion that someone could ever understand what's going on up here and give you what you need and want is also a path to unhappiness, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, honor, honor whatever is your yourself is asking you to do. This is a gift to your relationship as well. Yeah, and um, so I'm curious. Did the two of you talk about any of this while it was happening at the time? Because it sounds like you were sharing your experience, and I wasn't completely sure what your husband's experience was at the time either. And so I'm wondering, did do you, you mean like in the Mexico years towards the end? Were we talking about it? Or, um, yeah, or, or throughout. The, any of it, like maybe when you were married, like, did you share with each other any of this experience or did he read about it in the book for the first time? Oh, no. I mean, when, when he read about it in the book, it wasn't a surprise. You know, I'm not, I'm not a quiet woman. <laughs> <laughs> we had a lot of unhealthy, circuitous arguments about all these themes. And the book was probably the most constructive expression of that because it was all laid out and mapped out nicely. Like, this is what was really going on with me here. Um, 
but yeah, I think we all talk around each other, right? You know, and so we were we had a lot of those conversations during those years in Mexico. So like none of that was a surprise, you know, how unhappy I was or how much I was struggling during that time. And um, and I and I do, and I don't think think it was a surprise to him either that I just needed something like I my brain is the type that needed something. So when I started to show interest in writing from the beginning, um, my husband was really supportive and uh, of me taking writing courses and working through it. And so and then that became another opportunity for us to have these conversations because I could not do this without sharing it with him every step of the way and getting his permission because as you've you know brought up it is a very personal book and you wouldn't think it but I am a private person (laughs) (laughs) and it wasn't easy sharing those moments and um I I physically cringed and shook in these coffee shops as I was writing these things but um you know, writers are in service to their stories, and and I knew where the story was taking me, and I knew I had to go into certain corners and certain places because it's very disingenuous to talk about a newlywed couple and not, you know, and not explore everything, you know, every angle of that. Yeah, and I I think that's the place where I f- um, find you to be so generous of sharing all of these parts. Like you do share the beautiful parts. You do share the expectations. You also do share about the fights that you had. And I think that those are the stories that we so often don't have mm-hmm. um, where we don't see behind the curtain of happily ever after or just what the relationship is like. So I, your generosity there is And you know what's funny? I had a lot more of those fights in the early chapters and <laughs> the early versions of this because I was like, I'm going to write a really honest story of a marriage. And so there was a lot of this like up and down, up and down, up and down. And um, it was a long manuscript. And I was starting to set it out and I was starting to hear getting a little bit of feedback that it was too long and people were telling me no. And I sent it to this development developmental editor who did me a world of good but at one point she's like at some point this just has got to get resolved and I was like but but I'm trying to show like how in a marriage it's so up and down up and down up and down she's like yes I know but this is a story and at some point you can't just keep jerking your reader around like (laughs) some of these issues just have to get resolved but so I mean what you're seeing here was me holding back that's all I want to (laughs) say That was edited. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks again for the honesty, though, too. And um, so after you'd been in Mexico for a while and there were some really hard moments as you were talking about, um, I have a two-part question. On one of your trips back to California, um, you travel back by yourself and you're visiting with your in-laws as well as your family, too. And um, both your husband's mother, your mother-in-law, talks about divorce or brings up divorce or that opportunity and then you also have a conversation with your mom and your sister and you kind of have a somewhat of a breakdown and there too your mom talks about divorce and so I have a two-part question first is how was it to have these women who you grew up with both of them who had always talked about marriage and I think your mom had a saying out Mm -hmm. 
out uh, out the door in your wedding dress and you only come back home in your funeral shroud. Yeah. Exactly. So there was all this encouragement of, of the marriage has to work. And yeah. now suddenly these two women are talking to you about divorce and that option. So I'm curious, how was it to have them talk about that, which was somewhat different? And then the second part is what made you stay? Okay. So remind me of the second part when we get there because okay. I can get okay. tangenty. <laughs> So on the first part, those those two there's two scenes where there's kind of this shift where I see my mother and my mother-in-law in a new light. Those two scenes were really important to me and to the book because one thing I was trying to show in this book is how children of immigrants make up stories about their parents. And they put them in little boxes and they think they know what their parents would say, expect, want, and do for them. And then they don't try. They don't ask and they say, no, my mother would never let me do that. And so in both those, I hear in both those moments in two different ways, both my mother and my mother-in-law say the variation of, no, we never meant it like that. So um, in the first moment, I'm with my mother, and I'm, you know, really struggling. And, she, and, and I said, but you said I could never have a divorce. And she's like, you, yes, you can. You know, like we were in another country. We were just trying to teach you the right way. We never expected you to listen so carefully to everything we said. <laughs> and then in the other moment when I'm with my mother-in-law, um, she brought up a girl who had broken off her engagement, and it like kind of pricked my ear. And I'm like, I thought I thought a girl who broke off her engagement could never get married again. And she's like, Who thinks like that? We never thought like that. And and I did, and I played that story out even with my writing, you know. And I made up all these stories about how oh, this is not acceptable, we are not supposed to tell these stories, we're not supposed to write, and I kept it under wraps for a really long time, and I've been shamed once again, and that my family and my in-laws have been extraordinarily supportive. And so one thing I really hope to do with this book, too, was also to kind of bridge the conversation between um, you know, immigrant children and their parents and to make us aware that, yeah, we are being stereotyped, but we are also stereotyping ourselves, and we're stereotyping our parents, and we're making up stories about what they would allow us to do. And I mean, even you know, even this thing with the book, like I made up all these stories about how everybody was going to be so upset and it wasn't acceptable. And it's such an ignorance on our part, too, because it's as if we're born in America and we think, oh, America's the only culture that has books and has movies and has love stories and tell stories and i and i i've, I've told this story m many times in the context of when my first excerpt of this book came out it was in an anthology called uh love inshallah and it was featured 25 muslim women writing about their love stories and i was very very nervous to have a chapter in that book and it was also very good practice for me to test the waters of having a book out there. And uh, when I finally came clean and told my in-laws I have this chapter coming out of the book, my mother-in-law said, well, of course, it's art. <laughs> you know, she totally got it. And I, and I never gave them the space to think that they would get it. So there's that part. And then the second part was... The second part was that place of like staying you stayed oh, yes and so i'm just i'm curious like what 
Because there, there is a moment in the book where you're questioning whether you're going to stay or not, or at least as the reader, it came across that way, yeah. and you stayed. And so I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that process for you of finding it to stay. Right. I, 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 there was this moment in my life and in the character's life where she realizes the things she's running from are the circumstances of her life, one, and the stories she's told herself about her relationship and about her spouse. And she has this awareness and this realization that there's nothing wrong with the person she's married to. And I, and I have this line that I've repeated time and time and time again to my friends who have found themselves in similar positions. And I tell them, just don't run away from kindness. If you're being treated kindly and everything is okay, Work on the story. Work on what's going on up here in your head about your relationship. But don't leave the person who's probably just fine. You know, it's just how you're filtering, how they're treating. You know, it's a story you're making up about them rather than who they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's such an important piece because I think so often we don't get past that point of the expectation and our partner not meeting our expectations sure. and these disappointments over and over again. And so, like, are there a few things that stand out to you that you would say to somebody, like, let's say um, somebody who's just engaged or newly married, who's reading your book, what are some of those pieces that you've learned that helped you stay, move through it, like see those expectations, and then also talk to your husband about some of these things? Um, a couple of things that I always tell people is the one that we were talking about before, making sure you're taking care of yourself mm -hmm. and that you're fulfilled, but also making sure that you are really, really connected to a wider support network. So you are not putting all that pressure on your spouse. You should be equally married to your family and your girlfriends or whoever that is for you, your support network as you are to your spouse, not in the way that you are sharing a certain kind of intimacy um, with those friends that you're not sharing with your spouse, but that you're not putting all the pressure on your spouse to be all things to you. You know, and I consider myself one of the richest people in friends, and I feel like I have a friend I turn to for every little different kind of thing, and I don't need then my spouse to be all those things for me and I can just let him be who who he is for me and appreciate all the things that I do get out of that relationship rather than looking at all the things I'm not getting from it right and I think that's an illusion that there is just one person who can satisfy uh, all our needs for human companionship mm -hmm. yeah I think that's such an important piece to take from the book and also just from what you're sharing. Um, there's actually a, a little part that two sentences that I want to read from oh, yeah. the second to last chapter because they really spoke um, to me. Um, I'd believed that accepting my marriage came with its own version of happily ever after, a place where all our arguments were a thing of the past, where all our problems as a couple were resolved. I wondered how many other fictions of love still lurked in the corners of my mind. How liberating would it be to finally let them go? Mm -hmm. 
And that just so spoke to me, like those fictions that we have, again, and that we've been talking about, whether they come from culture, whether they come from our family, or we just make them up ourselves. And so I'm, I'm wondering, um, did you let go of these fictions now, like all these years later? Oh, that's such a good question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. I think those fictions can be really persistent, and they can crop up their head. Uh, they can rear their head, you know, every now and then, but they don't get me down mm-hmm. anymore, you know, and um, I see them for what they are, and I have a name for them. You know, that fictions of love is one of my, one of my favorite lines in there, too, and I, and, I, and, I, and I try even in my friendships with my girlfriends to help them see their fictions of love as well, and, and ultimately, I think and I keep coming back to this, if we are partnered with kind, decent human beings, we're in a good spot. There's a foundation to work with. And, 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 and that is not the case for everyone. You know, I mean, of, of, of course, like I'd be the first person to, um, you know, suggest my friends to leave a relationship that wasn't working. I mean, I think anything, I mean, for me, the, 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 the line is, is somebody bringing you up or bringing you down? You know, there are people who will diminish you, but as long as your spouse is someone who is building you up as a person, you're okay. You're okay. But there are people who who are not. You know, it's not a partnership where the other person is being supported and built up. They're being torn down. And... Yeah. And so you're saying that like you're still aware of some of these fictions sure. now still like they don't go away. There's just a different layer to them. Um, how do you personally engage with them? Like how do you recognize them? Do you share them with your husband now as well? Um, you know, I feel like for me, it's more that, OK, it's more of that this passing thing. Right. I can name it and OK, let it go. But one one thing that I, I had in the book before that I don't even think it made it into this version of it was the idea that at some point you have to take leaving off the table. It can't be an option anymore. As long as it's on the table, the relationship doesn't progress. And the person who's with you always senses the insecurity. And, and there's nothing to build on. And if that's in your language and in your vocabulary where... Uh, the threat to leave gets tossed around. It's it's not good, right? That it, it, you're not. It, so moving forward for us, kind of where this book ends is the point where I took that language and that option off the table, because you can't move forward with that dangling. You can't, because the other person has to know that you're invested and that you're going to stay. And it's only with that security that the person's in it with you can you, can you, can you move forward, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's such an important piece that I also see with the couples that I work with right. is that, like, you really, like, if you have one foot out the door right. or work. even just a half a foot out, it's yes. really hard. And we don't know what's going to come our way before we actually fully commit and are in. And then yeah. we get to discover together as well what's happening and how we're going to navigate all of these together. As I'm just listening to you, I'm, I'm thinking about love is coming to my mind. It's, it's also a very loving act to take leaving off the table right right and I think when it's um 
even if it's not verbally on the table, if it's anywhere in the corner of your mind, it comes through. You know, it's there's just a different level of investment. And it has to be completely not an option. Even in your own mind, it's an intention. You know, life is all about that intention. Like, I've made the intention to stay. I've made the intention to make this work. Yeah. And so I'm coming... My, my next question is almost a little bit like coming back to the beginning right. and to the title. First comes marriage, and yet we're talking so much about love. And so I'm wanting you to maybe share a little bit like what was the title about and where does it fit in in the whole story also around love? Well, First Comes Marriage works for this book and because, you know, Islamically and in our tradition, it's you kind of have to be married to have a relationship. That's the ideal, right? The marriage is going to come first. The relationship is going to come later. But on another layer, it also works for this particular story in that um, it was this kind of story that I told myself about love and marriage that didn't allow me to see the love that was already there. And, 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 and I had to kind of, that's what I'm unpacking in the book, is the love that I couldn't see that was there in the beginning because I had so much kind of baggage about what I didn't get, the American love story and all those little things and the bells and whistles that I didn't get. But um, ultimately, if the story was told from um, my husband's perspective, it would have been a very different story. For him, it's always been that I was just his childhood sweetheart and that he'd always loved me. And, um, and I... And, and I attribute that to part of it being because he was the male in the story, and the male in our in our culture is always the one who gets to pick. And I always knew that I was the girl, and I'd have to wait to be picked. And so for me, it was never about the love, and I was just waiting for the one who's going to pick me, you know. And let, and is is he going to be a suitable person who's picking me? Um, and and so in that way, that you know, there was that little that little disconnect that's from the different perspective. But had I, had I, had I not had that story of, of kind of that, but you need to be picked, right? Then I might have been able to just also believe that we could have been childhood sweethearts too. Mm -hmm. You know, I could have accepted the little kindnesses from him and, and taken them for that. You know, I didn't have to, it didn't have to have the big cultural story that came around with it that I couldn't extract, you know, hit the gestures from. Yeah, and I'm just as I'm talking to you, I'm getting just the impact of that story and that narrative. That it's the self fulfilling pro prophecy, right? Yeah. That we t when we talk about yes, and right. as as I'm now also like just reflecting back on the book, it seems like in the last two chapters, there's really something that happened for you and for the character of like it seems like you picked and you chose your yes. husband and your marriage, which then also allowed you to stay, it seems like. Yeah, and one thing that I wanted to show kind of quietly in the book is how much uh, relationships are also about decision-making and, and how we choose. And one thing my character realizes is I'm, I'm not a good decision-maker. I am a ruminator. I look behind me. I second guess my choices. My husband's a very good decision maker. He makes a decision and he's done. And he can like one thing and like it 
all the time forever. And, and one, one, one part of the book that's really part of our life was one time he told me, he's like, I love you like chocolate cake. It's always good. <laughs> and he has this kind of consistency. I cannot eat chocolate cake all the time. There's nothing I like enough that I can eat it every single day. So it's like some of it that was, he's a very consistent person. He can make decisions and not look back. And this was my first adult decision I'd ever made was to get married. And I'm a ruminator. I look back. I do it with everything. I do it with the houses we buy, with the cars we buy, with the shoes I buy. I mean, I can't. And so I think one thing that's so important for all couples is to get in touch with who you are as a decision maker. Because marriage and relationships are ultimately a choice. You're making the choice to stay. And I'm not a very good chooser, <laughs> is what I was learning. And I'm getting better. I'm, I'm working on being a better chooser now. Actually, no, I'm not. I'm really good at I'm going to be a bad chooser for a really long time. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, that is a really big part of, uh, of, of how couples negotiate their lives, is through decision making. You're constantly making choices together. Yeah, and you have to learn each other's ways. Your decision-making style. Yes, very yeah. much so. Otherwise, and I think it's good when they don't match. Don't match. It's not healthy. If I was married to another ruminator, we would get nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> we would be returning so much stuff. <laughs> I already return a lot of stuff. <laughs> Um, so I'm just curious. Um, again, the story is very much from your perspective. Um, are there any pieces that when you started writing it um, and you were talking to your husband or your in-laws or your family about it, any pieces that came up for you that were somewhat a surprise to you that maybe he saw it differently or that he experienced it differently um, or what his version of this would be as well? Um. So I didn't share it with anybody outside of um, outside of my husband and I. We were the only two who were in on this story because I had this moment where I told myself, well, he's the only one that I'm going to have a real problem if he leaves me. <laughs> Everybody else can get mad at me and my life will carry on, but this is the father of my children. <laughs> and um, there were moments that we had different versions of events, but I'm, I'm blanking on which particular ones they were right now, but we would talk about them and ultimately he, he, he understood what I was doing. In those particular moments, I'd explain why I was, some of it's in service to the story as well, why I needed the scene to move in a certain direction and why it needed to build in a certain way and why I was angling it in a certain way. And he got it. And that was what I think what was so incredible about um, sharing this with him is he didn't need to make it about us. You know, I really told him what this story, what I was trying to do in the world with this book. And he let me do it. Like he got it that some of this, you know, was going back to what we first talked about when we first started talking is I was trying to offer something to our community, that there was an issue of representation that I was working around. And in many ways, I, I am not here in order to share my life because I had some burning desire to share 
aspects of my life, right? I was using my life in service of a greater story, right? Because I wanted to, sh- to, to offer this conversation. Um, and so he got it. And so the conversations we were having were really not about, this is wrong. This is not how I remembered it. This, it was more, okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a sense of him. He understood. He understood. He understood. Yeah. And I'm also curious, you just was saying like that you, you wanted to have a representation. And so I'm, I'm wondering how's the feedback been from your own community as well of sharing this story? It's a new book. Like we've only been out about two weeks and I am touched and amazed that there have been people that have had time to purchase it, read it, and already get back to me and tell them how much it has resonated with them and how much it has um, spoken to their experience. And I always told myself when I was writing this that if I could tuck into the heart of one person and make a difference, then it would be worth it. And that was kind of how I got through this. And I always feel like that's the best writing goal is just write for the audience of one. Because if you think of more than one, you'll, you'll go nuts. So I just told myself to just imagine this one person that I was kind of writing to. And I had this image of this younger version of myself, you know. And I was writing the book that I wish I had when I was a 20-year-old Muslim bride who'd never been in a relationship. There are no books for 20-year-old women who have never been in a relationship. And, um, you know, because Muslims are in this funny space where we're young when we're getting married, but we're really old to be having our first relationship. So, you know, I may have been 20, but we were also two 13-year-olds, you know? And, um, and uh, now I come Okay. I, I think also what you're saying, though, is not that uncommon to somewhat everybody as well. Again, coming back to those expectations with which we come to relationship. We might be 20, we might be 30, right. but somewhere there is still that 13-year-old in there as well with expectations or the expectations of other people from our lives that come through as well. So true. We are never far from our 13-year-old selves. Yes. It's like the purest <laughs> form of ourself. Is that 13-year-old, they live underneath us forever. (laughs) (laughs) Very much so. Um, You also talk about some of the challenges that you faced around intimacy as well and how honest you were around that. And I know we had talked um, on the phone um, leading up to this conversation, and we had talked about how, again, there is that expectation of how romantic that first night is going to be or how we're just going to connect intimately with our partner as well and yet then when we get to that moment it's 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 often not the, the same way um, especially if we haven't had a lot of intimacy oh, before sure. we've done a terrible disservice to all humans every sex scene on television and movies is really cruel to people because it's just it just doesn't look like real life you know and uh for for again for those of us who have never had any relationship and that is all you've seen uh, you, it seems so seamless and so automatic, right? And it's just so easy and there's no conversation required and everything just happens. And, um, and so that, 
that was what I was kind of getting to that I knew if I was going to write this story for this particular audience, it, it would be disingenuous to talk about a newlywed couple and not acknowledge that, that kind of, um, that, I don't want to say the awkwardness, but yeah, it's awkwardness, you know, there's some awkwardness there. And I also just wanted to offer someone who was, you know, my target audience is the 20 year old, (laughs) Who version of myself? What did she really need to see, and what did she really need to read and to know? Um, and and that's actually one of the I get the most feedback about that about those scenes, and it seems to have they were the hardest ones to write, but they're the ones that have struck the chord the most. And I think it's an an issue in our community that um, that first collection I was in that Love and Shala was trying to start that conversation about. And that really meant a lot to me that I've also been trying to continue on that conversation is um, our community needs to get more comfortable talking about love, relationships, physical intimacy. And the way we do that is by changing how we're represented in the entertainment culture as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you're 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 doing that too. You're leading the way with your book and like offering this. It almost seems like you're giving advice to your younger self. Yeah. I mean, and and it was something that I was kind of searching for when I was struggling. I would turn to books. Like I'm a reader. I always look for books for help and there was no book I could find that spoke anything to my experience of, 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 of a person who had never been in a relationship and who was now married. And, and, um, and, I, and I feel like there should always be a book for that, you know? And then and, and later on when I was reading other accounts kind of by Muslim authors that are, were kind of treading into that territory, those moments were always very conspicuously absent. And I felt like that was also kind of reinforcing, like, oh, we don't go there. <laughs> and and I didn't really want to go there either, but it had to be done. You know, it had to be done because it's not honest. It's not a reflection of, of, a, of a married life. I mean, it's a huge, huge part of a married life. Yeah, and it it sounds like that's a part that also didn't get talked a lot about in your family or in the culture as well. And and there too, we bring so much expectations to our partners. And the piece also that I'm getting is that like this is now so many years later, like you've learned so much, you trust your partner now, you know your partner, but back then you didn't have that. And here you are like in this area of intimacy, kind of fumbling, not knowing how to do it and also not having language and how to speak to each other. And so then having a book that can help. Right, because, you know, for us, like the practicing Muslims in America, when everything's coming from um, American culture, we can write it off like, oh, this is, doesn't belong to us or we're not allowed to relate to this and this doesn't reflect our experience. So somebody from within us also has to own these stories for us to have the permission to relate to them too. And, um, you know, you brought up that it, it wasn't really talked about. You know, I think, you know, my mom was extraordinarily open and she tried to talk to us but 
you know, the, the tab, the greater taboos were so strong that it kept me from even trying to listen to her. Um, you know, like our kind of the, the expectation of virginity in our culture is so, so strong. I, I remember thinking to myself in, in, in my early 20s, well, it's better to be as dumb as possible because that's the best way to prove to people this thing that's so important to them. Now, you know, leave no doubt. Leave no doubt. You know, I'm proven virgin by my ignorance, by the fact that I have no idea how any of this works. You know, and that's so unnecessary, <laughs> so unnecessary, yeah. right? Yeah. So I want to, in a few moments, open up to questions sure. from the audience as well. Yeah. And so just before we do that, I wanted to just check in and see if there's any other piece that felt important for you to share about the book or about your story. I think we've covered a lot, we but have. I just wanted to see if there was one more piece. I just more want to say what an unbelievable experience it is for me to even be here on this stage and sharing this story with you. It's taken me so many years to write this book and it's always amazing when I'm in conversation with someone who, who gets it, you know, who reflects it back to me. And, um, it's a thrill for a writer because you, you work so hard kind of alone by yourself in a room and you don't know if all these threads and elements that you were trying to communicate came across. So it's just been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed it as well. And it really does, like your message comes through very clearly. So thank you for sharing thank it. Thank you so much for well. having me. Yeah, very much so. been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.